Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Yes, the rules have changed. Indoor Air Quality Radio welcomes you. Uh, this is Friday, March 18th, 2011. Episode 201 comes to you from Studio C in McKees Rocks, PA, where it's a beautiful spring day. My name is Cliff Zlotnick, or the Z-Man. Joe Hughes, a.k.a. Radio Joe, will be participating remotely from up on the mountain today. And at our controls is our engineer, Austin Stone Cold Novak. Today's segments include the IAQ radio trivia question, an interview with journalist and author Arnold Mann, halftime, and our roundup. Check up our new Facebook page, IAQ Radio Program. We've been updating and adding to our blog every week after the show. Check it out at www.iqradio.com. Now we'd like to thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. It's easy to contact the show. Uh, just go to our website, www.iqradio.com, and follow the link to the show. You can download the show by going to the website, following the link that says go to the show, or you can obtain the show through iTunes. Don't forget, you can get your ABIHCM points, IICRC, Continuing Education Credits, or ACAC Renewal Credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting the quizzes. Joe's email address is joe.use at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening via your computer, text the answer live into the show. Congratulations <laughs> to John Lapotier, MicroShield Environmental Services, Winter Springs, Florida, for being the first person to correctly identify October 26, 1891 as the date on which the Purdue football team was first called the Boilermakers in a newspaper headline. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, March 18, 2011 has been sponsored by Cochrane & Associates, the indoor air quality industry's dedicated marketing and public relations firm. Now for the trivia question. Name the material, the chemical symbol for which is HG, that occurs in several forms, all of which can produce toxic effects in high doses. 
Today's guest, Arnold Mann, has been writing about medicine for a national audience for the past 25 years. His cover stories for Time and USA Weekend have earned him recognition as one of the nation's leading medical journalists. He's been around. He's worked as a staff writer at the National Institutes of Health, and he covered a midwinter airdrop to the South Pole for Air and Space magazine. More to the point, it was man who blew the lid off toxic mold 10 years ago with a series of cover stories and features in Time and USA Weekend magazines. Many of you probably remember them. Today, though, he's here on IAQ Radio to talk live about his new book, They're Poisoning Us, from the Gulf War to the Gulf of Mexico, an investigative report. Arnold, thank you for joining us and welcome to IAQ Radio. Good afternoon, Arnold. Good afternoon. Okay. Well, let's start with first question. How do political and economic forces impact the science of environmentally induced illness? That, that's a big question, and I'll do my best to answer it, okay? Um, let's just say I, th- I, I think the problem with environmental illness um, is that it is a threat, in, in a sense, to many different aspects of industry. The, uh, the chemical industry for one, the insurance industry for another, and these industries uh, in large part do finance a great deal of the um, research going on at university today. And um, uh, this is something that, uh, that, that impacts their bottom line. Insurance industries, because, uh, because these are exposure-driven illnesses, exposure-initiated uh, illnesses, and uh, there's the potential for litigation. Also, they're very, very expensive to treat. Um, where there are, in fact, where there are effective treatments, it's very, very difficult to treat. Uh, primarily, they're treated symptomatically, but these patients are, um, they require a lot of time on the part of doctors. Uh, and the chemical industry, of course, because this is perpetuated uh, by long-term low-level exposures to a huge variety of chemicals um, that we use in everyday life. So uh, industry, this disease is not in its best interest. I think that's the best way to put it. You know, I'm curious, Arnold, this is Joe. um, In the book, you also discuss another large industry that is impacted with uh, economically impacted I'm, I'm i'm going to follow up after i ask you the question but um can you tell us first about the story of ulcers and pharmaceuticals oh that's a that's a terrific story in fact this is very much to the point here up until about oh geez it was maybe 25 years ago ulcer disease was considered to be caused by executive distress uh, executive stress Everybody knew that. Every doctor knew that. And it was treated with antacids, et cetera. They were coming out with H2 blockers uh, at the time, the uh, pharmaceutical companies. And then all of a sudden, a, uh, an Australian physician researcher by the name of Barry Marshall came along and proved to everybody that ulcer disease was caused by the H. pylori bacteria and that it could be cured very simply by a uh, of antibiotics. I think this story is really pertinent here. I'm glad to bring it up, and I, I do talk about that in the book. And the reason why is because whenever doctors don't really understand a disease and its etiology, a lot of the times they tend to, some say blame it on the patient. Let's just say that they tend to attribute it to stress, and that's what's happened to a great extent to multiple chemical sensitivity, the Gulf War syndrome, 
uh, it's been attributed to you know post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, very much like that. When finally they get to the underlying mechanism for this disease and they're able to say exactly what causes it, i.e., when we get another Barry Marshall coming along, hopefully that'll happen. Then the lights will be on for everybody. You know, it's. I'm just uh, let me let me follow up real quick, Cliff, on that. The pharmaceutical companies. I forget the name. Was it a B2 blocker that you mentioned, or it was an H2 blocker? H2 yeah, blocker. They had invested billions of dollars in, or today's money be billions of dollars for sure. And then all of a sudden, along comes this Australian guy and shows, then you can cure it entirely with a course of antibiotics. Do you know if they've ever come up with any other use for the uh, H2 blocker? Um, I think, oh my goodness, you're, I'm a little bit out of my, uh, out of my realm there. I, the H2, antacid are still, antacid are still used quite a bit to treat gastritis. Um, uh, gastroesophageal reflux. As far as the H2 blockers, I'm not familiar with that. I wish it were. I don't. I don't have a complete medical background aside from all the doctors that I interview. Yeah, it's just amazing. They put all that money into it, yeah. and now it's kind of like you know, wow. It happens Don't. all the time, and they lose a fortune. And that's one of the reasons why uh, why the pharmaceutical industry is um, Jesus sometimes justified in their defensiveness. I hate to say it, but they're fighting for survival like everybody else. Absolutely. Cliff? Well, you know, just to follow up on that, you know, I had a bee sting situation, and I was <clears throat> treating my son, actually a bunch of wasps. Uh, I got stung by last uh, last year, and I ended up going to the hospital. I delayed it, and I was using Benadryl, and it didn't work, and I was surprised that they told me to take Zantac actually and that ended up cleaning it up when the benadryl wouldn't so i think sometimes these uh, uh, drugs that the pharmaceutical companies create I, I guess based on fda labeling you know they're required to just have a narrow uh, area to work in when sometimes there might be other benefits but or what statistics do you have on the number of people that might suffer from multi-chemical sensitivity or, you know, react adversely when they're exposed to chemicals? Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, in the course of researching in a book, one of the major sources of information on this was a doctor by the name of Stanley Caress, <clears throat> who is an epidemiologist. He's done a lot of epidemiologic work, and he did national studies. There have been a number of studies. Um, Basically, what it all boils down to is that approximately or between 2 and 3% of the population in this country has been diagnosed with multiple chemical sensitivity, 2 to 3%. Um, about in one California study showed that about 6%, 6.7%, I believe the number was, um, does have uh, reactivity to chemicals to the point where it impacts their health. They may not have the full multi-system uh, disease where they have chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, and everything else, but to a lesser degree, they are affected, and some of them to the point also of disability in from time to time. And those are the primary numbers. And up to 15%, I believe, of the population does report reactivity to chemicals. I will tell you that the most the most shocking number that I came across in the book was a study that was done in uh, metropolitan Atlanta. And that study found that 2% of the adult population, because that was the responders who were all adults, of course, to this study, 2% of the adult population in metropolitan Atlanta was out of work because of multiple chemical sensitivity. And that's pretty much in keeping with the, with the caress numbers as well. I'm curious. There's a, a quote, I believe, from a doctor, Hedge, about what the most allergenic organism on Earth was. Can you... Tell our listeners about that. Yeah, that's um, in fact that was of course when I was when I was researching the story about Southwest Airlines, their reservation center in San Antonio, and Hedge was one of the first guys I talked to, and he said the most allergenic creature on Earth is the house cat, and I have heard of, in fact this from other physicians, and in and in fact uh, one physician who works at a university told me that one of the people, a woman, kept a bunch of cats, and they had to put her in a different department because people reacting to her when she comes in. They bring in a lot of dander. 
you know, that's an excellent point. Uh, you know, you know, we think, you know, sometimes people have issues in an office, and it could be being brought in by other you know, people bringing allergens in on their clothing, on their bodies, and, and so on and so forth. You know, speaking of some of these allergens, you know, whenever you buy a box of latex gloves, and, uh, you know, there's a warning on there, what can you tell us about latex gloves and occupational allergy and stuff like that? I just know that the latex, um, if, 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 if Harvard University of Nurses became very sick, um, became chemically sensitive as a result of exposure to latex gloves. I don't know exactly the mechanics of it, uh, Chris, but um, it's sort of like, I, I suspect it's not like an off-gassing, but the fibers or whatever from the latex are uh, very much inherited and in some cases can make people uh, chemically sensitive. I guess maybe... Uh, I think they became chemically sensitive. Let me qualify that, that they had a major problem in, uh, I believe it was a Harvard University hospital with latex gloves, the nurses there. It might be the the powder, too, that they put on it and that carries parts of latex and stuff like that. Joe? Yes, um, there's a, a pretty lengthy section about, and, and a lot of the book focuses on the Southwest Airlines group of uh, primarily women, I guess it was, that um, at least you talked to, and I think it was primarily women that worked in there. I guess it was a reservation center in in uh, Arizona. Uh, San Antonio, Texas. Or San Antonio, okay. <laughs> and it was interesting to me that this was back in the late 80s, I guess early 90s, and they were still allowing smoking in that building was there any um, you know because a lot of people were having problems with chemical sensitivity and they were having problems apparently with with the mold that was found in the building do you think maybe the smoking exacerbated the problem there that's very possible um, you know there can be a synergy between different exposures I think that can make somebody sick more sick than they would be or sick when they would not be um, I do believe that the Cleveland infants, they found uh, that there was some smoking going on in some of the homes. Uh, you know, and this, this was where there was the pulmonary hemorrhaging infants, uh, pulmonary hemorrhaging incidents in the infants in the, in the mold-infested inner-city homes, and it was suspected that that might be synergistic. That might have made them more susceptible, their lungs, to the hemorrhaging, uh, to the stachybotrys mycotoxin, which then resulted in the hemorrhaging. As far as the Southwest Airlines building goes, uh, I know that uh, the women who I did interview there told me that the smoking was certainly an irritant problem for them. There were four quadrants in that building, and smoking was going on in all of them. Eventually, they isolated it to one. But as you know, the buildings like this, they have one HVAC system servicing the whole thing, so it didn't completely keep it out. And then eventually, they uh, relegated it to a break room that was outvented to the outside of the building. Uh, people, this was about midway, probably. Uh, the building opened up in the early 80s, and I think the smoking was banned probably in about maybe nine years or so. I don't know. Um, it might have been synergistic. It might have been a contributing factor, too, that made them more susceptible. But did the problem well, I don't think you brought on the stroke, so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, but did the problem continue after they stopped the smoking in the building? Yeah, very much so. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and that that was eventually attributed to both fungal and bacterial contamination, as I understand it. Or were there other issues that I haven't gotten to yet in the book? There were several issues going on in that building. I think the smoking gun was the fact that the building did have a major fungal infestation. Um, it was in the air handling units, and it was also they had. They had carpeting on the walls to suppress noise, as well as on the floor. And the building, it was found also, was operating under negative pressure, which, as you guys know, is going to encourage uh, condensation on the inside walls. And this was very much the case. When they peeled off that uh, carpeting from the walls, the employees reported, the walls were just covered in black mold. Um, so it was a bit of a mold then. Now, besides that, there were back, there was bacterial contamination inside the air handling unit, so you have endotoxins as well as the stachybotrys mycotoxins in the air. In addition to that, uh, because the building was operating under negative pressure, 
there was probably a shortage of fresh air coming in that building from him. One of the gals said that when you opened up the door to go in a building, you almost got sucked in. That's how bad it was. And in fact, there was sewage being uh, coming up through the drainage pipes. Uh, one of the industrial hygienists reported to one of the employees. The negative pressure was that strong in that building. That's what was said by one of the industrial hygiene inspectors. The other thing was that they were, uh, they were also spraying pesticides throughout the building in the air handling units and around the people working at their stations as well. Uh, and this was confirmed by company memos that were obtained. So there were a number of factors in that building, and it would be hard to say which one did what. What, what has happened to that building since? Um, I, it's, it's my understanding uh, that they did. Um, after the Time Magazine story ran in 1998, uh, sometime after that, not too long after that, they did replace the HVAC system. Um, they did replace the HVAC system. I don't know what the current status is on the building, though. All right, Cliff? I, I guess I really have a two-part question. Uh, the first part is, in the book, you really did not comment a lot on people that have multi-chemical sensitivity having prior histories of psychological or mental instability. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, what have you found with that? Well, I think a good, that's a good point. Um, there is... A certain amount of uh, Cynthia Wilson, who runs the Chemical Injury Information Network, pointed out, and she's like ground zero for this thing. She gets calls from all over the country, and she herself is chemically sensitive. Uh, she pointed out that there is a certain amount of misdiagnosis going around. Um, uh, you know, there's all different types of reactivity that one can have in the environment. Doesn't have to necessarily mean that they are multiple. That they have suffered from multiple chemical sensitivity. Um, but the diagnosis itself, when you talk about the psychiatric factors, the answer is twofold. I'll answer it like this. Number one, in Dr. In Dr. Uh, Caress's studies that I mentioned earlier, the epidemiologic, national epidemiologic studies, he did in fact deal with that. And he found that a very small percentage of patients or people who were taking part in the study a very small percentage of those, on the order of about 1%, um, who, who participated and who had reported sensitivity or had been diagnosed, about 1% of them had, priorly, had prior use of antidepressants and had psychiatric problems. But since they're initiating exposure, a much larger percentage on the order, I think of about 25 or so, reported using antidepressants. Now, Theron Randolph was the father of... Uh, you know, of uh, environmental medicine uh, show that people who have these multiple system problems, including psychiatric problems, when you put them in a chemical-free environment, all those symptoms go away. That's the amazing thing. He would put them in an environmental unit, which was free of chemicals of all types, and he'd have them in there for like a week, and they go right down to baseline. They would lose all of their chronic fatigue, their fibromyalgia, and everything that went like that. And, to his amazement, many of them would lose their psychiatric problems as well. That this is a neurologic condition that plays into psychiatric effects as well as other manifestations. You know, the, the, the second part of the question, you know, mm-hmm. I, and you know, sorry for interrupting you, this, you know, the second part of the question ah. really is a lot of these people want to blame something they want to blame someone they want to blame some company for this uh, how do you account for that human nature isn't it i mean uh, we all want to know that there's a reason for things that happen that are bad to us and especially when we're angry and and we want to have somebody to blame i i, I completely understand that um but what you're asking me, I think, is is a lot of that blame misdirected. Is that what you're asking me? No, but I think that that's a good point, um, that it is mis- <laughs> it might be misdirected. Can I say something? Sure. You know what? I, think I do have a, I have a good one for that. The answer to the question, I think, is that there's a lot of confusion in this area. I'll say why. Dr. Claudia Miller divides this into a two-step process. There is the initiating toxic exposure, whether that happens to be sound from the Gulf War or Spacubatus 
mycotoxins or pesticide, there is the initiating exposure a person has, and then there is the perpetuation of the ongoing multiple system symptoms, chronic chronic, <laughs> chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, etc. This perpetuation of, system, of those symptoms is not from that continuing initiating exposure. That's over with. They're out of the building now. It's because they become sensitive to so many different things in the environment. So when somebody finds themselves sensitive, let's say a woman, to the perfume that she always used to love, there may be the mistaken tendency on that part of a woman to blame the perfume for making her sick in the first place, when the perfume is not the initiating problem, when the perfume is part of the perpetuation of it, because she's sensitive to that and to so many other things. Other people, they're sensitive to gas, they'll be sensitive to the gasoline fumes when they fill their gas tank. Um, they walk down a supermarket aisle, and the fragrances will set them off. So what was it that made them sick in the first place? What is it that's perpetuating the problem? And I think there's a certain amount of confusion in this area on the part of patients. I can understand it. I can't stand my perfume anymore. This is what made me sick. When, in fact, it was a pesticide exposure two years prior to that that really set them off and put them into this place in the first place. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Joe? You know, <clears throat> excuse me, Art, you, you mentioned Dr. Theron, uh Randolph's contributions uh, briefly to treating people with chemical sensitivities. I can follow up on that. How was his work received by the medical establishment then, and has, it, has that reception changed at all since then based on your reporting? Well, back then, when he was at the University of Michigan, uh, he was, they were doing allergy testing, you know, the, the, the field of, that he was in. It was relatively new because immunology didn't come along until really the 1930s. So he was ran off in the 1940s or so, 1950s. And <clears throat> the first thing that he observed, and it was brilliant, was that with standard allergy testing, the IgE testing, where you have an antibody antigen response, correct? Mm hmm. What he found was that he could get a much sharper response if he had his patients abstain from whatever it was that he was going to be testing them for for a week. And he found that he got a much sharper response. So people, they were getting false negatives, let's say, uh, with allergy testing, and he would come through and get a very strong response. So he began to question the value of conventional allergy testing as it was done, skin testing, scratch testing, etc. And he said, in order for this to really work, you've got to have the person abstain from whatever it is that you're going to be testing for for a few days or a week. So you get that sharpened response. And this is because, and this is, this is actually very important to uh, multiple chemical sensitivity, the observations regarding that. And that is that there's a masking phenomenon that goes on. In other words, People who are exposed to low-level, low-level uh, daylight or everyday chemicals, they may be uh, a baseline sick, for, and so not know what's setting them off. And what Randolph noted here was that people who have allergies may not be having sharp responses when they're exposed to something because they're being exposed to it very often. You see, it's almost like that first cigarette of the day somebody has that makes their head buzz whereas the fifth doesn't do anything like that to them. That was a major contribution on his part, and I might say, as a result, he was, um, it went very much against the grain of conventional allergy uh, testing at the time, and it got him in a lot of trouble with his colleagues. It was the first thing that caused him to really break from traditional allergy uh, and immunology uh, thinking. And how is his reputation uh you know come along since then or are you familiar with how people currently think about his contributions well i think uh you know when we uh, he was a phenomenal um uh detective he was like a he was, he was a great medical detective and i think people in general regard him as being um significant important the problem is is that mainstream medicine, when it does not understand a disease, um, 
tends to, as we say, it's all in the patient heads. And Theron Randolph stuff, he was, was and continues to be very controversial. You know, he brings up things like he's saying there are two types of exposures. There are the um, endotoxin, uh, endotoxic exposures, which are stored in fats. We, you know, we accumulate these things in our bodies. And then there's the exogenous exposures, which are things from the outside coming in that we react to. So we're sort of like built-in chemical plants inside of ourselves with all this stored in our fats. This goes very much against the thinking in conventional medicine that people are going to be allergic to themselves, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> um, this is a whole new line of thinking, but then so was the germ theory of disease when it came along, and so was immunology. Flip, right. I think it's halftime. It is halftime. Right. Our association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. And, of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. I guess what we call the mistake on the lake, uh, it's about a two-and-a-half-hour drive from here, Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, let's talk about the Cleveland babies a little bit. Um, what do you call the king cobra of mold? Well, that was that was, that was something I coined. I apologize if it rubs anybody the wrong way, but it just leaped into my head. Stachybotrys, from the moment I first encountered the concept of it, the uh, this was one during the Southwest Airlines Reservation Center uh, story. I think it was Eckhart Johani was describing it to me at that time. And it just, it, it, that's the way it kind of, it, it has the most potent mycotoxin, if you will, um, I believe. Uh, there are other molds that produce mycotoxins. But this one, at least with regards to reputation, it's like the king cobra with the most potent toxin that's being put out there that seems to be very harmful. Does that make sense? It, it absolutely does. <laughs> Jeff? You know, I... I am very interested in the um, Gulf War component. Of, Joe, of l- 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 let's finish Cleveland first. There, we got a okay, couple. Do you have a question on that? I could have answered that better. Yeah, no, actually, I think we have a. I, I think we have two more that we want to do, and then I think we'll move over to Gulf War. Okay. I, I think the first one is um, why do you think the Center for Disease Control refuted their earlier findings? That was the big question going on at the uh, at the EPA conference in 2000. Everybody was wondering why in the world had they brought in an outside panel of experts to reevaluate the data from its own investigative team that had already been published uh, after after an eight month review by CDC in uh, in pediatric mag uh, in, in a peer reviewed pediatric magazine. Why had they decided to bring in this outside team of experts. It was assumed after they retracted the entire thing, the outside experts said there was nothing to it, that no association could be made between the stachybotrys uh, high levels of it in the homes 
and the pulmonary hemorrhaging occurring in these infants, one of whom had died, uh, that no association could be made, no national alert was made to doctors about the possibility that this, that the, that this toxic mold could cause this problem in children. Why had they done it? Everybody wanted to know. And it was later uh, assumed uh, that the CDC can be a very political organization and that the insurance companies had their hand in it. Uh, this was at a time I was doing one cover story after another on toxic mold, and uh, this was at the time when Melinda Bauer did won a $32 million verdict against Farmers Insurance when her toxic when her Texas mansion was consumed by mold. Uh, it was a verdict, a bad faith uh, verdict against Farmers Insurance. And the insurance companies were really circling their wagons. Farmers was thinking about pulling all of its homeowners insurance out of Texas. The other ones were putting mold exclusions into their policies. Um, they were very threatened by what appeared to be, what appeared to be at the time, the next asbestos. Oh, my God. All the lawyers, a whole new field of law was, was, was born, the toxic mold lawyers. And it was assumed, it was believed that somebody had made a call to CDC from the insurance industry and said, shut those guys down. Um, and, and Dr. Nicholas Money, in fact, devoted a chapter of his book to this. Carpet Monsters and Killer Spores was his book. He, did right. he actually devoted a chapter of it in his book, and he said somebody from the insurance industry must have made a call to the CDC. And that's where it came from, shutting it down. What can you tell me about um, this case in Syracuse uh, of child abuse? Uh, just tell the listener. I, I just was amazed by that. Yeah. Well, that was Dearborn um, uh, was called in to consult a woman was accused of abusing her child. Uh, the child had suffered from pulmonary hemorrhaging, and in fact, when he investigated, it turned out that they had a mold problem in the home. And he showed that when they tracked the child, that they had bruised uh, the inside of the child. But it, it should have been on both sides if, in fact, there had been abuse and the child had been, uh, you know, abused uh, by the mother. And uh, the judge reversed the decision against the mother, who had been, I believe, incarcerated already for this, right. reversed the decision, released her uh, after Dearborn had testified that this was obviously not a case of abuse, and he proved medically how they, when they trached the child, that they caused the bruising, not the mother, that this is probably a case of pulmonary hemorrhaging, very possibly from uh, exposure to this mold. After that, Dearborn was amazed to find that they were re-prosecuting this woman again, that the prosecutor wouldn't let go, and that he was, he said to me, he thought it was the insurance companies were at work, and again, they did not want a connection between stachybotrys and and uh, pulmonary hemorrhaging or any other major medical problems because uh, of the fear of litigation. Curious, since then, you know, there have been some reports of these clusters, not not a great many in, in the AIHA Green Book, for instance, there's a few. But um, I'm curious, have you followed up on any of these clusters or found any others since the Cleveland incident? Well, I can tell you that initially... Uh, during that 10-month, 20-month uh, period, there were 10 infants who showed up at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital that their, the door dearman had treated. Uh, one of them had died. He said, you expect to see maybe two, three, or four every 10 years at a hospital like that. That's how unusual this cluster was. I can tell you that now, as of, this, uh, as of the date that I finished the book, Dearborn has had 53 of these infants come in with pulmonary hemorrhaging, five of whom have died. And that's just Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital. He said there have been reports of it in other cities as well, uh, inner city housing. Uh, and by the way, of those 53 infants that have, um, that have come into Rainbow Babies uh, since then, uh, he said that stachybotrys has been uh, found in over 90% of the homes. I'm curious, why do you think that mold has not really become the new asbestos with respect to legal issues? Well, that's because with asbestos, they were able to prove, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you will, 
the relationship between asbestos and the type of lung cancer that it causes. And with regards to mold, this has not yet been proven. Um, the Dauber test of reliability puts the uh, responsibility of determining if evidence is um, if, if evidence is admissible into a case on the judge. So the judge is basically given the responsibility of determining whether or not um, evidence should be admitted. And in the case of Stachybotrys, the science is not yet there to make this connection strong enough where those kinds of health claims have been able to be made. Um, it was brought out that uh, during the course of this book that that um, if somebody has mesothelioma and they can show that there is uh, that, that that they had any exposure whatsoever to asbestos, that it's good in court it's a slam dunk. And they used to group all these people together and they would do uh, you know these group claims with uh, with toxic mold with stachybotrys. Uh, this is just not possible. It just doesn't work. They, the courts are not um, not making judgments in favor of the plaintiffs on these cases. Where they will make a judgment is in the case of, let's say, Ed McMahon, who won a multi-million dollar judgment, and he won it because of respiratory reasons. It affected his ability to do his job as an announcer. That they don't disclaim. Most mold can cause allergic problems respiratory problems. But as far as the multi-system diseases, as far as the cognitive impairment, as far as the um, fibromyalgia, the disabling chronic fatigue, this has not been proven yet. That's the, I guess that's the, the problem right now for those that feel they have been affected by this. We just don't have that definitive causal relationship established at this point. We may never. We'll find out, I guess. Yeah. Let's go and to the plan. I might add one thing. Uh, with regards to um, Nicholas Money's notice uh, that the Cleveland infants, that the insurance industry had some hand in it, um, I can't really make the, you can't really point the finger entirely, but it was very unusual that at the time that the study, uh, the Cleveland infant study, done, done by Dor Dearborn and Ruth Ethel, at the time that the team was brought in, to reevaluate it and shut that study down and retract everything. At that time, the director of the CDC was a past president of Prudential Insurance, and that prior to him was Dr. Satcher, who went on to become Surgeon General. But prior to Dr. Satcher uh, was another gentleman who also, uh, after being uh, director of CDC, had gone to become president of Prudential Insurance. I can't say who's responsible here. I did try to interview that fellow, Dr. Coplin, and he declined to be interviewed. But it seems to me, it just seems to me, I cannot understand how a former president of a national insurance company can be made director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention because the conflict of interest is just huge. Everything that he gets involved in is going to affect the bottom line of the insurance industry or a great portion of it. Yeah, I was thinking, Joe, let's, you know, I think that, you know, subject probably on all of our uh, minds is, is golf war. We, we really should, should switch over to that now and spend some significant time. Arnold, what causes are the, the golf war syndrome? Um, good question. Let's talk about what's implicated, and then we can talk about what's got. For the longest time, um, it was uh, the Veterans Administration and the DOD, the DOD in particular, denied that any exposures to chemical weapons or otherwise even took place at the Gulf War. Um, and eventually, of course, it was found through the investigation by Senator Regal that there were, in fact, um, multiple exposures and hundreds of thousands and more uh, were exposed to chemical weapons from Saddam Hussein's uh, weapons bunkers were blown up, and also from incoming Scud missiles from Hussein. So let's talk about what was implicated here. Recently, and only recently, because uh, Gulf War Syndrome was attributed to post-traumatic stress disorder by the VA for years, uh, for like 15, almost 18 years. Finally, the VA uh, 
found that one pyridostigmine bromide tablets. These were used uh, to uh, to protect the troops against nerve gas, and they're an acetylcholine esterase uh, inhibitor. It's Basically, it blocks nerve gas from binding to uh, a receptor that uh, that it would bind to. Uh, that has been implicated. Uh, the troops became sick when they took these tablets, and um, and in the aftermath, they stayed sick. There, there were so many different types of exposure, so it's hard to sort out which ones did it. Also implicated were organophosphate pesticides. These were the areas where they would set up camps were literally bombed with these with these pesticides uh, before they even set up the camp. And they were uh, sprayed inside tents as well, and they were sprayed on the clothing, that is the fatigues, et cetera, uh, uniforms of the, of the men and women who served there. And uh, they, even had, they were even told to wear flea collars. They were afraid of disease coming back to the United States. So there was uh, there was a lot of uh, pest- there were a lot of pesticides used, including the organophosphates, which uh, today have been largely banned. Uh, we don't use them anymore. Also, uh, the insect repellents. Also, the petrochemical byproducts of the Kuwaiti oil fires. Uh, these include all the VOCs, benzene, toluene, uh, ethyl benzene, uh, the PAHs, uh, hydrogen sulfide. All of these things, both toxic and carcinogenic, and with crude burns, it creates oxides that are even more dangerous, as you gentlemen probably know, than the original chemicals. Um, so, again, the petrochemical byproducts of the Kuwaiti oil fires, and the sky was literally black with this stuff for months, to the point where um, the troops' skin was actually, as one once said, it was, his skin was as black as his watch band uh, just a few hours after taking a shower. Another thing was depleted uranium. We were using depleted uranium uh, rounds. They're more dense. They are armor-piercing, and there was the cleanup from that and exposure to it, uh, the troops had. And finally, there was the anthrax vaccine. Ordinarily, it takes about 18 months to take effect. And in order to get it on board with these troops fast enough, because they were on their way over there, they added a squalene booster to this. Uh, squalene is uh, it's an immune system booster, and they added it in as um, Colonel Herbert Smith told me. He was a veterinarian serving over there. He said, this stuff hadn't even been tested in animals yet. And he said it just boosted the immune system too much, and maybe that's the reason why a lot of guys came back uh, with immune system disorders, like lupus. A lot of them came back with ALS. Um, that may be the reason why a lot of the immune system disorders came up. But this was probably, the, it was just the most toxic battlefield of all time. What kind of numbers of, of troops are we talking about that had these immune system issues occurring after the Gulf War? Immune system or multiple chemical sensitivity oh, and a whole basket of problems. It goes with Gulf War illness, is that what we're referring to? Yeah, let's just go with Gulf War illness. Yeah, because immune is hard to would be hard to tease out, but mm-hmm. significant number. I can give you the numbers. According to the Institute of Medicine, the latest numbers, it started out very small and it grew bigger, but according to the Institute of Medicine, and this was acknowledged by the VA now too, of the 700,000 troops who went over there, 250,000 came back chronically. Ill. We're talking one-third of the troops, basically. That's right. A little more than that, even. You know, while we're while we're talking about the troops, um, what is a never there vet? Uh, some troops were they're they're also called a non deployed deployed. Uh, Colonel Avery, for instance, was one of them. Uh, he was a pilot, and he would fly troops over there, and he would come back, and he was back and forth, and he would fly troops out of the battlefield and into other countries where we had uh, medical uh, setups going. And Avery was uh, has no record of being deployed to the Gulf, uh, although he brought back troops and everything, and he was exposed to a lot of the stuff too. Um, they would literally bomb the inside of his, <laughs> bomb the inside of. His. He said there was a canister that it said, "Do not open, um, in, uh, you know, expose to expose to people," and they would open up this canister of 
pesticide, and they would spray the inside of his entire cabin of his plane when he was coming back to the U.S. They were very concerned about what they would bring back from insects, diseases and such. Um, so Avery was one of them. He has, he's one of the non-deployed deployed. He was, in fact, over there, but um, his records did not show it. There are others who served in this country who were exposed. Um, one was a nurse in California, and all of the sick troops coming back, their uniforms were very contaminated with pesticides, etc., and some of them uh, were, you know, been in, in the midst of uh, depleted uranium, um, and their uniforms came back very contaminated, as well as all of their equipment. She said it was covered in blood, a lot of it, and so um, some of these people who were not deployed in this country, who never left this country, wound up sick as well from exposures of the troops coming back. What's Chapter so it, 61 military retirement? Mm -hmm. Well, let me see if I can get that exactly. But it basically, uh, if you were self-employed um, as a reservist, that means that your benefits, your disability checks, were, uh, were deducted uh, or your, your your retirement is deducted from your from your. Uh, let me, I don't know if I have this exactly right, but I'll get it in the ballpark. That your benefits are deducted uh, from your disability, or your disability is deducted from your benefits. In other words, you get a lot less than you should be getting. Right. I think I think what it was was that your medical treatment by the VA, the cost for that is going to be deducted from your military retirement. Um. Let's see if we got that right. What's it called again? Chapter sixty-one. Chapter Chapter sixty-one. So it, it made it seem when I read it in the book that you were going to kind of be paying for your own health care rather than the government paying you for it, even though they were responsible for for your exposure. I can tell you exactly what it is. Hold on one second here. I want to get it right. Uh, sixty-one, which is strictly for reservists, and. Um, Basically, uh, let's see if I've got it here. Yeah, you deduct the VA disability from your Army pension. That's what it is. Right. Not necessarily about the medical treatment, but where they deduct the VA disability from the Army pension. That's what hmm. it is. But it's you know it, it has a huge impact on a guy's uh, you know retirement, what he's able to live on. What is? Go ahead, John. Oh, I'm just curious. You know you. You've investigated this issue a lot, and mm -hmm. it seems to me that you know, we obviously want to take care of our veterans, and um, you know all the politicians say so, but I don't understand why there seems to be such a difficulty for these guys getting some kind of treatment or compensation, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they are getting it, and I don't know. Well, it's been very difficult for a long time. I think part of the problem, and we face this uh, in mainstream medicine as well, is that very little is known about this new disease paradigm. Very little is known. So doctors don't know really how to treat it. And the VA, can you imagine 250,000 troops coming back chronically ill? What do you do with them? How do you treat them? Uh, the VA doctors are throwing their arms and they don't know what to do. The other thing, too, is, is that um, when they, there's been a huge suppression of research within the VA system. And the reason for this is, is that the DOD, in the first place, didn't want uh, anyone knowing these guys were exposed to chemical weapons because, and this was brought out in the course of uh, interviewing uh, several people, um, we supplied Saddam Hussein the means by which he was able to create his chemical weapons, and they were done through uh, licenses from the Commerce uh, Department of Commerce. And here we were sending our troops in there, and now they come back sick, and so... To make a simple point, it was the disease, as it were, was being attributed to post-traumatic stress disorder for like 15, 18 years. That was a VA position on it. What do you do with post-traumatic stress disorder? You give them antidepressants and you send them home. What does the Senate Banking Committee have to do with veterans' benefits? Um, it wasn't so much that. It was Senator Don Regal who initiated the investigation uh, into the DOD and to find out whether or not the troops had been exposed 
you know, chemical weapons and various other things. Um, he was the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee at the time, and he was able to go into this. Nobody else would. The DOD isn't going to investigate themselves. And um, well, he said that the Defense Department is pretty much in the sack with them. Uh, I'm sorry, the um, uh, in the Senate, those who oversee defense weren't looking into it either. What opened the door for him was those original licenses by Commerce um, to send the uh, materials over to Saddam Hussein to make its chemical weapons in the first place. Those licenses opened up the door so Regal was able to go in and do the investigation with the banking committee. But what set Regal off to do this in the first place was that uh, in his home state of Michigan, he was he was listening to that, and these threats were coming in and talking about how sick they were, and he just needed to do something. And that was the door that opened and enabled him to do it, those licenses. Those licenses to send that stuff over to Saddam Hussein. And that was, I think part of that was because we were supporting him when he was fighting Iran. That's right. Okay. That's right. Cliff, ready for the roundup? I am. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Okay, Joe, go ahead. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to, I don't know if I'll get a chance for two. I've got about five left here, but I know I want to make sure we at least mention the, the Gulf of Mexico because mm-hmm. that's a part of the title of your book. And I, I just want to open up to you because we've only got a few minutes left to give our listeners a little tease on, you know, what what your uh, thoughts are with respect to the issues that people may develop as a result of the cleanup, I guess, would be in the Gulf of Mexico. Yes. In fact, there was a study done that I came across uh, by uh, Annie O'Neill. It was actually a master's thesis at Yale. And it looked at the uh, veterans of the veterans. It looked at the cleanup workers uh, 14 years after the Exxon Valdez. And this study was phenomenal. One-third of those cleanup workers, and they didn't burn the oil there like the Gulf, uh, Gulf of Mexico uh, veterans did, uh, Gulf of Mexico workers did, there was no burn-off there. It was just exposure to the, to, to the oil itself in various stages of the cleanup. One-third of them developed central nervous system damage, memory problems, etc. Twenty-five percent of them in the study, it was found over those 14 years, in the 14 years since, had developed chemical sensitivity. And by the way, those are approximately the same percentages of the guys coming back, uh, guys the women, the soldiers, the, the people coming back from the Gulf War, very much in keeping with that. <laughs> now, so what, so what do you say about the Gulf of Mexico workers? This was a different situation, and it probably was a lot more dangerous. <clears throat> and the reason why is because they were burning off millions of gallons of this stuff. And these workers in these 1,500 boats in this armada, these fishing boats, supposed to be out looking for fish and stuff they were rounding up this oil by day with you know using booms and then at the end of the day when they rounded up a big a lot of this stuff they would hook hoses up to it and it would pump water into the booms to keep them from burning while they burned all of this oil and they would burn off all this oil and then be like they hooked up like 100 200 300 feet from it and they were right in harm's way. They were not permitted to use respirators. They weren't even allowed to bring their own. So they were sitting there eating the stuff. This was a much more dangerous cleanup than the acts on Valdez. 46,000 workers. And those burn teams caught it big. Not only that, but they were spraying Corexit from planes above them. Um, they were coming up with the same flu-like symptoms that you'll find in a sick building dizziness, nausea, headaches, etc. And as far as how many of them are going to be sick in the long run, it's difficult to say. One thing brought up by Dr. Claudia Miller was that when crude oil burns, 
it creates ultrafine particles measuring about a micron, about a millionth of a meter in size. These tiny particles can float almost indefinitely on the slightest cushion of air, she said, finding their way deep into the lungs of cleanup workers and, coast, and coastal residents. By the way, it's been reported that about half the coastal, well, I shouldn't say that. It was loosely reported by some that about half the coastal uh, residents in some areas are, in fact, chronically ill now. And uh, whatever is in the mix in this crude burning, the sulfides, the OCs, etc., they will hitchhike on these tiny particles and ride their way into the deepest part of lungs, according to Miller. And once inside the lungs, they gradually release whatever toxins, toxicants that they are carrying over a period of days, weeks, months, even years. Cliff, so, you want to finish up, and then we'll ask if uh, Arnold has anything that he'd like to add that we missed? Sure. Um, Arnold, are there any treatments for multi-chemical sensitivity that are showing promising results? I think there are some. Like I said, there's so... I want to say there's so little known about the underlying mechanism, but it's true, unfortunately, at this point. But there are things coming out of the science now, in particular. Um, um, the one thing that that's always being pushed by all of the doctors, Kate Kilburn, who I talked to, Meryl Nass, Grace Beam, um, the three A's, and Ray, too, uh, William Ray in Texas, the three A's, avoidance, avoidance, avoidance. People can uh, find out what's setting them off. They, they have to they go on an elimination diet, um, get themselves into a, as, as chemical-free an environment as possible, and then see what sets them off, reintroduce things little by little, and then avoid those things. Other things, like glutathione has been found to be useful. That's an antioxidant that neutralizes these free radicals that do a lot of cell damage. And it's been used uh, and it's been shown to, uh, to improve cognitive, and, uh, cognitive uh, abilities. Um, Meryl Nass uh, in Maine uses evidence-based treatments. In other words, she goes after the symptoms. And she has found, in particular, that low-dose narcotics, which is used by other doctors, other doctors is, can be very effective in the treatment of disabling fibromyalgia. And you have to be careful who you give it to because some people are going to be, um, have the, you know, addiction uh, potential, uh, about 10%. So you have to be careful who you give it to, who takes it. But for the vast majority of people with fibromyalgia, low-dose narcotics may be very useful. And she said that once you relieve the pain, a lot of the chronic fatigue in people will be relieved as well because the pain uh, is very much a component in, in chronic fatigue or it can, be, can cause chronic fatigue. Coenzyme Q10, uh, Q10 um, is in every cell of the body, in the body, and the production of energy has also been found useful. Um, vitamin B12. Grace Theme. Uh, who is in, in Maryland, and uh, she's probably one of the primary people treating multiple chemical sensitivities. She's had a Harvard, Johns Hopkins credentials. Uh, she uses a thing that's called the Spectra Health Blood Test to look for what's missing in people. She looks for vitamin B12, uh, various vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, and other essential micronutrients that may be low in people, and then she brings this up. Um, I think one thing that can be helpful to people uh, in particular is, uh, is to find out if they're chemically sensitive. Go to, there are a number of websites that can help people. I want to mention these, okay? Sure. Uh, one of them is the chemicalsensitivityfoundation.org. It's run by Allison Johnson. Good source of information. The Chemical Injury Information Network, which is CIIN.org, is very useful. That's run by Cynthia Wilson. DrClaudiaMiller.com, DrClaudiaMiller.com. On that site, people will find uh, an, a questionnaire. It's called the Queasy, Q-E-E-S-I. And people taking that questionnaire will be able to determine uh, their degree of sensitivity to chemicals if, in fact, they are, as Dr. Miller would call it, tilted, toxic-induced loss of tolerance. And also Grace Seems Chemical Industry.net is a very good source of information for people. And I, I think that's the best thing for people right now is, is if they suffer from chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, uh, cognitive and memory problems, if this basket of symptoms seems to be a disabling part of their life, 
then uh, these are good sources of information. It's a good place to go. But the good news is, uh, and I think there is some good news, is that the science is advancing to some extent, largely, I think, also because of the work done by uh, Dr. Haley at the University of Texas and others, and treatments are emerging. It's, it's slow. There's no cure yet. Um, but there is help. Okay. Well, thank Arnold. Before we close, we always like to give our guests, uh, you know, fi- opportunity for final comments, uh, that sort of thing. So, is there anything that you'd like to say? Yeah, I think this is a national health problem that has been largely ignored for an awful long time for a variety of reasons. And I think the most important thing is for. Um, for the research to get underway to help people because this is it is an entirely new disease paradigm and let's face it before the germ theory disease doctors were clueless all they knew was the patient had what they called fever they didn't know let's say um, that it was a pneumonococcus uh, bacteria that was causing it at the bottom so what's at the bottom of this thing and What's needed right now is the research to get to the bottom of it and come up with treatments. Um, and for myself, you know, a journalist is lucky if he manages to hook into something that's bigger than himself during his lifetime. And uh, the writing of this book for me, is, it's, it's been a duty and a privilege, and I'm grateful for it. Yeah, let's, let's tell people one more time the name of the book, Cliff. It's uh, They're Poisoning Us from the Gulf War to the Gulf of Mexico, an investigative report by Arnold Mann. I assume people can get that on Amazon. Is that accurate? Oh, they can get it on Amazon. Um, it's available online at Barnes & Noble, and it's available through any bookstore. Any bookstore can order it because uh, it's available through Ingram. Um, if anybody has uh, any problems, or anybody, they shouldn't have a problem, you can click through on, uh, you can go to my website. Uh, it's www.arnoldman.net. Um, there's a link there to buy it um, or, you know, for any more information. If anybody wants to contact me, they can contact me through that website. There's a button to reach me. Uh, I'd love to hear from them. Okay. Great. Well, Arnold Mann, thank you for joining us. Thanks to my co-host, Radio Joe Hughes. Thanks to Austin Stone Cold Novak. But most importantly, thanks to you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IEQ Radio. has been another IAQ Radio production. Call recording has been completed.